Hello, welcome back to another episode of the show. This is episode 723 of the Inner Fight Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Smith. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Glenn Livingston. For any of you who binge, eat, train, watch Netflix, whatever that thing is, then this show's for you. We mainly focus on binge eating through Dr. Glenn's experiences. He has gone on to carry out an insane amount of research around binge eating and why people do it. But to be honest with you, binging in a number of different areas of life may have a lot of the same roots. This show, we uncover some pretty interesting stuff, which I think will help a lot of people. This is episode 723 with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the show. As I was saying there in the introduction, I think this show will resonate with pretty much everybody. Dr. Glenn Livingston, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm very good. It's nice to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Before we get into all this juicy information about eating and disorders and binging and all the rest of it, mate, set us a scene a little bit. Give us a little bit of your background so we understand where you're coming from on things. Yeah. Well, the most important thing to know is that I'm, I'm not just a psychologist who decided to work with eating disorders. I had a very serious problem myself. Right. And I, I come from a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists, so I always approached it with a, you know, yeah, they, you got that look on your face. Um, <laughs> but the, standard, the standard joke is uh, if something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. <laughs> that, that, that's Brilliant. iconic for my life, and you don't want to come to the family reunion. Um, <laughs> in any case, wow. when I was about 16, 17, I figured out that if I exercised for two or three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. I mean, like six or 7,000 calories of pizza and pasta and Pop-Tarts and muffins and lattes and chocolate bars. And if it wasn't nailed down, I got it. And if you've ever got to the Woodbury Country Deli and they were out of pizza, it's because I was there first. Um, oh, my goodness. But I didn't really think it was a problem. I, I thought yeah. it was, um, to quote Doug Graham, more like a superpower. And I, I was thin, actually a little thinner than I am now at the time. And um, I was, you know, I'm 6'4", I'm relatively muscular, just yeah. naturally. And I, I got away with it. I got away with it. Um, I wasted a lot of time, you know, overeating, spending too much time in the bathroom, oversleeping, that kind of yeah. thing. But I was a teenager. Um, I was married at 22. And at that time, I went to graduate school and I started seeing patients which is all I ever wanted to do. Right. And I was commuting two hours each way. And my wife at the time had a business that I needed to help her with. And I just had no time to work out. Right. Uh, but, but I found that the eating had a life of its own. And I'd be sitting and working with suicidal patients and thinking, when can I get the next pizza? When can I get back to the deli? You know? Wow. And, and if you know anything about clinical psychology, it's... Um, you have to know a lot of things, but it's not really an intellectual endeavor. It's more like you have to be present and lend people your soul yeah. and get them to love you and trust you enough to think new thoughts and exit their comfort zones. And especially with high-risk patients, you really have to be there. Thankfully, I never lost anybody, but um, I wasn't always there. And it really, really bothered me. Um, 
being from the family I was from, I went the psychological route. I went to the best psychologists in the area, the best eating disorder specialists. I took medication. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I figured if I could love myself then, if I could fill that hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to keep filling the hole in my stomach. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't regret that journey because it was very soulful and helpful in my life in a lot of ways. I learned a lot about myself, but it didn't really help me stop overeating. I get a little better and a lot worse, a little better and a lot worse. Um, I have to tell you another part of my history, my background, so you understand the unique perspective that I had. I, I don't have children and I never commuted. My ex-wife traveled for business all the time and she was a consultant to industry, mostly, mostly big food and pharmaceuticals. And I started doing a lot of that consulting also and I, along the way, I figured out that they are, uh, they're spending millions, if not billions of dollars to target our reptilian brains. They target the bliss point in the reptilian brains with hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins and sodium. And, and they don't give you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. Yeah. And that's what creates the addictive nature of these foods. And it was starting to dawn on me as I was doing this consulting that this is a very powerful force that has nothing to do with whether my mama loved me enough or I had a hole in my heart. This is uh, something that, that really targets the reptilian brain. And interestingly, the reptilian brain doesn't know love. The reptilian brain looks at something in the environment that it's like a bad college drinking game. Excuse me, I slipped. It's like a bad college drinking game. It's like, do I eat it? Do I mate with it or do I kill it? <laughs> Brilliant. This is the seat of the feast and famine response. This is the, yeah. this is the um, seat of survival and emergency responses. And it turns out that we think that binge eating is much more rooted, overeating is much more rooted in those reptilian primitive uh, feast and famine you know, hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt responses mm. than it is in our... Um, mammalian brain, which says, hey, before you eat meat or kill that thing, what impact does that have on my tribe or my loved ones or, you know, the kind of person that I want to be in the world, yeah. or, or the neocortex that really strategizes and plans and looks at uh, long-term thinking, like, like weight loss, like you have to do for weight loss, because you can't lose 30 pounds tomorrow. Yeah. So, so here I am spending all this time trying to love myself then, but the part of the brain that responds to food addiction doesn't know love. That's really, really interesting. Mm. Um, I was also exposed to what the advertising industry does. Um, for example, I talked to the vice president of a very popular uh, food bar whose name shall remain nameless so I don't get my ass sued. Yeah, I think that's a better idea. <laughs> and he told me as he was leaving the company, he said, I've got to tell you what the most profitable thing we did was. We took the vitamins out of the bar because they were making it taste bad and they were too expensive. Mm. And we put the money into the packaging instead. So we made it look healthy, but wow. it's not healthy. Wow. And I don't mean to single out this one company that goes on all across the industry. Yeah. They, they just don't have the right incentives. And 
consumers actually want to be lied to. They, they look for something called plausible deniability. You know, my potato chips are made with vitamin E and avocado oil, mm. therefore they're healthy, mm. ignoring the acrylamides that are created when you roast a potato and the fact that uh, any study on heated oil tends to uh, come out with carcinogenic results. It, it's, um, but, but they're they're masters of plausible deniability. They're masters of fooling your reptilian brain into thinking that it's healthy. And so I said, okay, these are two forces, the advertising industry and the the big food industry and what they're engineering are both aligned against me. Um, mm. And the reptilian brain doesn't know love. So I'm probably going down the wrong road. Mm. I came to the point that I engineered a study for myself. I was getting, so I had the second career as I was telling you, because my, mm. my wife at the time, uh, she wasn't home a lot of the time. And, and I worked at home and I didn't have kids, so I had a lot of time. So I engineered my own study. I was getting paid a lot of money to do these studies. They said, I'm going to engineer my own study and figure this out. And I intercepted people on the internet when clicks were cheap. And I got 40,000 people to take a survey over the course of several years. Wow. The survey, the people I intercepted were searching for solutions to stress of one sort or another. And the survey asked them the types of food that they couldn't stop eating once they started. And I found a couple of interesting things. People that can't stop eating chocolate once they start, they tend to be lonely, depressed, or brokenhearted. And my binges always started with chocolate, so that was particularly interesting to me. I'm going to come back in a, in a moment. Wow. Um, and it, was, it seemed accurate at the time because I wasn't happy in the marriage. And, you know, um, people who struggled with uh, chewy, soft, starchy things like pizza and bread and bagels, they tended to be more stressed at home. And people who struggled with crunchy, salty things tended to be more stressed at work. So I, this was like the last vestige of me trying to find the emotional solution. And so I went to my mom, who's also a therapist, and I said, Mom, you know I struggle with chocolate. And the truth is I am a little lonely and brokenhearted. But why did this start in the first place? Can you tell me you know, a story of my upbringing? Why do I run to chocolate if I'm not happy? Mm. And she said, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. She gets this horrible look on her face. <laughs> and, and, and I say, mom, you know, it's, it's okay. I love you. This is when I was about, you know, 42, 43 years old. I said, oh, I, 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 I love you. I forgive you. This was 40 years ago. Um, I just want to figure it out. She says, I'm so sorry, honey. But when you were one year old in 1965, your dad, my husband, was a captain in the army, and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified because we had another one on the way, your sister, we were trying to get pregnant with your sister. And I thought I'm going to be an army widow with two small kids and no way to support myself, and it was just going to be awful. So I was terrified. At the same time, your grandfather, my father, had just gotten out of prison. And I didn't know he was guilty. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know where he was for a year and a half. And I was just devastated. You know, I, I idolized this man. He'd always been the, the light in my life. And here he was a criminal and I was devastated. And so I was honestly too depressed and anxious most of the time sitting and staring at the wall to give you the love that you needed and the healthy food that you needed to make all the preparations. So what I did was I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup on the floor in a floor refrigerator. And I would say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the refrigerator, you'd wow. take out the bottle, you'd open the cap, you'd suck on it, and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And that's where it started. And you know, I got to tell you, Marcus, if this was a movie, 
Yeah. At this point, mom and I should have a big hug and a big cry. And then I should never have trouble with chocolate again, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully. <laughs> but that's, but that's, that's not what happened. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had a metaphorical hug and a cry. And I, I learned a lot about myself. I stopped hating myself so much. I learned a lot about my mom. It was a good conversation to have. Mm. But you know, my chocolate eating got worse and my binging got worse overall. And the reason it got worse was there was this little voice in my head, this voice of justification. And it went something like this. You know what, Glenn, you were right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can get out of this marriage and find the love of your life, you're going to have to keep on eating chocolate. Yippee, let's go get more right now. Yeah. So there was this part of my brain that had this just, okay. So I put all these three, three things together and I decided I was going to have to flip the paradigm. I was also reading some alternative addiction literature that was suggesting something similar. Mm. And I said, maybe it's not a love yourself thin paradigm. Maybe this is more like there are a lot of outside forces targeting the survival part of my brain that has nothing to do with my personality and my background and everything like that. There is this voice of justification that makes it okay. But you know, if, if emotions are like a fire, mm. you could have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace and that becomes the center of hearth and home. It's an asset, not a liability. The moment that the fireplace has holes in it, and it was like the voice of justification was poking holes in the fireplace, then an ash can get out and burn down the house. Otherwise, people will gather around and share memories and laughs and cries and stories, and it, it really just becomes a, an asset. So I said, what I need to do is fix the freaking fireplace. And I, I use a different word. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, I, I need to fix the fireplace. And this is a little crazy because I'd read some other addiction literature that suggested this might work. And I, I was not going to do anything publicly with this. This was just privately, I was feeling desperate and needed to fix things. And I, I don't think I mentioned I got up to like 280 pounds and my triglycerides were <laughs> over a thousand and the doctors were telling me I was going to die. And it was, yeah. you know, I had, I had all kinds of other problems too. Right. Um, but but um, I did something a little crazy. I decided that I needed to draw a very clear, bright line between healthy and unhealthy eating so that I would know when my reptilian brain was active. Mm. So I started with chocolate and I said something like, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. I will only ever have it on a Saturday or Sunday. Right. Very clear, bright line. And there, there are reasons having to do with willpower for using bright lines instead of guidelines and our culture tells you just the opposite. So we can yeah. go into that later if you want. Um, but then... I always have to, I'm a very sophisticated psychologist. I always have to stress that when I share this part. Then I decided that if I heard a voice inside of me that suggested I should have chocolate on a Wednesday, I would say, that's not me. That's my inner pig. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is brilliant. Um, very crude, very primitive, very alpha. Mm. It's like, Look, my, my reptilian brain is trying to take over. I'm, I'm going to stop trying to love myself then at those moments. What I'm going to do instead is dominate it the same way that I dominate my bladder or my testicles, right? Mm. If my bladder had a very strong urge to pee right now, I would say it doesn't. But if it did, I, mm. I would say, okay, but I'm talking to Marcus. I have this appointment to do this interview. You're going to have to wait 20 or 30 minutes until we're done. I'm in control. You're not. We'll pay afterwards. Yeah. I wouldn't totally ignore it. You know, I would say there's some legitimate need there, but I would 
channel it in a constructive direction according to what I want to accomplish in my life. The same thing with my testicles. If there's a beautiful woman walking down the street, I don't run up to her and kiss her, stranger. Mm -hmm. um, I actually don't even talk to her because I'm kind of shy. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, but that's, a, that's another story. I, uh, the point is I'm in control, yeah. right? It's not like I, and I said to myself, those are both very strong urges, very strong biological urges. Why can't I take control of the urge to overeat the same way? And I would like to tell you that it was a miracle and I was immediately better, but I can't tell you that. What I can tell you was a miracle was that it was no longer mysterious to me. Up until that point, I felt like there was this mysterious force inside of me that knocked out all of my best thinking and I could wake up every morning feeling like today was the day I was going to do well. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, I was eating chocolate bars and pizza. Um, I no longer felt like that. I never, no longer felt like it was an internal force. Suddenly, I felt like I had free will. I had control. And I, I would wake up at the moment of impulse. I would get those extra microseconds to make the right decisions. And more often than I used to, I would make the right decisions. I felt like I got some power back. Right. Then over time, and I'm almost done explaining the whole backstory. I can take your questions. Over time, <laughs> I... Um, I backed into some other rules. I said, well, if I have free will and I'm able to make choices and I'm not powerless or hopeless or, you know, possessed by some mysterious force, yeah. if this is just me making these decisions, then let me come up with a set of rules that I will follow. Right. And, you know, I created some rules for things that I would always do. Like I, you know, would always start the day with two glasses of pure spring water. I might always have a pound of leafy greens per day. Mm -hmm. I came up with some things that I would um, do under certain conditions, like I will only eat pretzels at major league baseball parks. Uh, I came up with a list of things I could always, I, I could do no matter what, unrestricted things. Yeah. And I, I, I played with a whole bunch of different rules and I found a plan that I could work with. Um, I'm not going to tell you what that is because I find that everybody has to find their own. Yes. So my, my whole philosophy is diagnostic, yes. but that's how I got better. Slowly but surely, I was complying more often, um, and I, I um, it, it's all because I have a pig inside me. <laughs> so now I'm the sophisticated psychologist that walks around saying, I've got a pig inside me, and, and maybe you do also. Um, no, really? When I, got divorced, when I got divorced, I published the book, and it took off. And my Yeah. Problem. Well, let's, I, it's an incredible story, and there, there are certain things I want to try and draw some lines here because I think this is the best way that we can use this incredible story to, to help people, Glenn. I want to talk firstly about what happened when you were a child with that chocolate sauce. And was that the start of what I would presume is programming the subconscious that that makes you happy. But at that moment, you don't know why it makes you happy, but it's giving you this feeling that makes you better. Do, is this something in your work and in, in your research that you're actually seeing that a lot of these eating disorders that we're seeing these days can actually be drilled back to a young age? And how important is it if that's the case that we actually have that discussion when you're 40 odd with mom and really say, mom, did you do anything when I was younger? And she says, yes, the chocolate sauce. What, what, what's your take on that? It's a very important question, and it's very astute of you to, to ask that. Um, yes, there is almost always an origin 
of people's particular choice of binge foods and particular binge behaviors. There is almost always a psychological origin of that. Mm. What does not follow from the fact that there is a psychological or origin is the idea that you have to solve those problems in order to stop binge eating. You, right. you need to think of it separately. It's, it's kind of like um, when a fireman is called to a fire, they don't sit around talking about, well, what caused this fire and how did it start? And you really have to, let's, you know, let's spend a couple of years talking about it and, and solve this problem first. Yeah. They put out the fire. <laughs> yeah. they're, very, they're, they're very practical ways to do that. And so, yes. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you about that in a little bit. You want to really focus on the practicalities, but you want to think of them as two separate endeavors. So it is important to have that discussion for your psychological well-being. Yes. So that you can forgive yourself, so that you can feel lighter inside, so you can forgive the people who wronged you if they did. Um, yeah. It's an important discussion to have, but it really comes after you put out the fire. And you don't ever have to have it. You don't ever right. have to have it if you don't really want that psychological comfort. Mm. It doesn't seem to have much to do with whether you stop overeating or not. It seems like the foods that are being manufactured and the way that they're presented have a life of their own. And so yeah. whatever caused it, and there are these psychological causes, it's more important to put it out. Mm. Now, there's something else that's very important about, um, about the psychology of binge eating. A couple of things. Most people assume that you have this psychological discomfort, it causes the need to escape or quote unquote, numb yourself out. Yeah. Um, and, and then you binge and you feel numb. And, you know, and that's why the whole pattern is, is reinforced. Um, first of all, it's not true that you're only binging to feel numb. If it were, when you went to the dentist and he was out of Novocaine, he would say, would you mind if I injected you with some chocolate? Right? Brilliant. <laughs> right? So it's not true. You're doing something else. When you're binging, you're actually binging to get high with food. These yeah. are unnatural concentrations of, you know, in the case of chocolate, theobramine and stimulants and sugar yeah. and fat. It's an unnatural concentration. Another word for that is a drug. You're, you're binging to get high with food. Mm. So it's important that you do that because most people if they believe they're just binging to comfort themselves, it's kind of like a way that their inner reptilian brain, I, I call it my pig, you can call it yeah. your food I love it. I'm happy with the pig. Okay, so, so it's, a sign, it's a sign that you're, it's something your inner pig can use to take advantage of you. It says, oh my God, can't you stay? I'm in pain. I need comfort, go, go get me a bagel. Yeah. Um, you, you know, it's, so you want to distill out that. You want to, most people don't want to be a drug addict. And so you want to say, well, I'm binging to get high with food. And that wakes you up and gives you more motivation to, to stop that. Um, the second thing, though, is that we believe that the feelings cause binging. Mm. But what if I told you that binging causes the feelings too? Mm. So let's take anxiety. Let's say someone, a lot of people tell me they're so anxious at night that they can't get to sleep unless they binge. Yeah. Well, do you know? There, there are physiological correlates of anxiety. If someone is anxious, usually their heart rate is up a little bit. You can measure on an, on an EKG. You can um, see their perspiration and their blood pressure rise a little bit. And if you look at animal studies and you monitor those physiological correlates, we did this with baboons. Mm -hmm. For example, every time a baboon has high blood pressure, you give it a sugar reward. Mm -hmm. Don't you know that that baboon will teach itself to have 
high blood pressure yeah. more frequently so it can get more sugar rewards. So you believe that the anxiety is causing the binging, but maybe the things you're eating are rewarding the anxiety and your body is figuring out how to produce more anxiety. So it's very important you understand that it goes both ways. The practical solution is to start with one simple rule, something you could and would follow that would have a big bang for the buck, but wouldn't be too hard. Don't set the bar too high, mm. set, set a low bar, yeah. because you need to prove to yourself that you're in control. Yeah. Um, I, I know a guy who lost 150 pounds starting with, um, I'll never go back for seconds. He was a truck driver, yeah. Yeah. He ate fast food three times a day, but he didn't go back for a second. Yeah. So that, that kind of thing. I think one one thing that's, that's for sure, Glenn, and, and you probably you i think you would agree with this is that some people going back to the fire analogy for some people to move on and to rebuild the house where the fire was for want of a better uh, uh, expression they they kind of need to process why the fire started so if someone is binge eating or, or does have a strange addiction to in your case chocolate and wants to try and find out i don't think i think it's healthy to potentially have that conversation will it sure. solve the will it solve your addiction probably not is what you're saying there but i think for a lot of people they'll get a lot of solace in the fact that i know where this fire started so i can kind of start I, now to put the pieces together i i got a lot of solace from that yeah but um the problem is that it can take years to find that you're correct I, yeah yeah and so so I, I find that when clients come to me and they really want to explore that and they don't want to get started until they really know, yeah. I, I usually don't take that clients, those clients because it takes um, <laughs> it, 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 it takes too long and I, and I can get them to stop binge eating. Yeah. I tell them, like, would you just take one simple rule and go through this procedure with me? Yeah. We, can, we can talk about the emotions at the same time if you want to. Um, but the probability of working through that emotional conflict is also much greater yeah. if you're not in the middle of binging while you're doing it. Yeah. Ask, ask any psychotherapist, would you rather work with a patient who's binging or not binging? They'll say, we'll make a lot more progress if they're not binging yeah. because the feelings are more available. Yeah. There's more space between stimulus and response. That's where people can have memories and you know, form associations and make emotional attachments that are necessary to really work that through. Yeah. So yeah. they they can go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, I just find overall in our culture, people are 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 un, they're incorrectly informed that they have to solve the problems first. And so yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, Marcus, I love the deep psychological talks. I mean, it was a really <laughs> helpful thing to I really do. Um, and it's sad for me that I'm not immersed in that every day anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I, and I always tell myself when I'm retired, maybe I'm going to go back to doing more of that because I, I love it. It's fascinating. It's yeah. soulful. Uh, I just find that the actual practical results, and, you know, we, we get a 90% reduction in binge frequency in the first month when we, when we coach wow. people. Wow. So, cool. I mean, we, we, we have the data to show that we're doing something right. Yeah. Um, Let's jump so, a little bit to the, and you've alluded to this, you, you mentioned it a, a few times. Let's jump a little bit to the ingredients that we're seeing in modern food. Now, a lot of people know in parts, probably from what they've read in the media, that a lot of modern food is being engineered and, and GMO and, 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 you know, we, we hear about it. But on a few occasions in the last 20, 30 minutes, you've mentioned quite specifics, some of the 
addictiveness of foods. Just make us a little bit more aware of that. So someone's driving to the supermarket right now. I want them not to pick something up because of what you're going to say in the next few minutes. <laughs> well, probably stay in the sides of the supermarket and, you know, not in all the packaged goods area and you'll be doing okay. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> most, thing, most things that have a label on them have been processed. Maybe not in a health food store sometimes, but um, what you need to understand is that evolution didn't prepare us for this level of stimulation. And so let's stay with the chocolate bar. Yep. Um, we, did, we didn't have chocolate bars on the savannah, right? Um, we, we probably didn't have food addiction on the savannah. Yeah. What happens when you present a chocolate bar to your taste buds, to your pleasure systems and the, you know, in the, um, the do dopaminergic stimulation, which is what you get when you feel pleasure, is that it goes wild at first, and then it starts to downregulate. It's, it's like if you sleep underneath the subway, like I did in graduate school, at first you're like, oh my God, but three weeks later, you don't even hear it because your nervous system has downregulated its response to it. Yeah. Same thing happens with supersized stimuli with food. Uh, if you're having a lot of sugar, if you're eating a lot of chocolate, your taste buds will downregulate to the point that you probably will get, uh, a lot of people say they don't like fruit and vegetables anymore because, um, you know, they're so used to all the hyperstimulation that now it seems like they're caught in this trap and they're, they're chasing, the, chasing the dragon, quote unquote. They want higher and higher levels of stimulation. Yeah. To the, at, at some point, people feel like they need the addictive foods just to feel normal. It's like they feel depressed because there's an absence of pleasure in their life. We, we call it anhedonia. Um, there's an absence of pleasure because their, their pleasure system is not responding, at least with food, the way that it should. The good news is, if you stop sleeping underneath the subway, your brain upregulates, and in like six to eight weeks, I think your taste buds will double in sensitivity if you remove some or all of the, um, the overstimulation from it. So what stops people from doing that is the period in between feels wrong. They'll say that it's boring, that, that because they're so used to the overstimulation, you know, it's like the difference between living in New York City and living out in the country. Yeah. They're, they're not used to living out in the country. It doesn't seem right. It's too quiet. Yeah. But you got to get through that and then you're, you're normalizing again. Another thing that you mentioned that some people might know, some people might know that they've been caught in the trap of, but it was very interesting was in, in, in the early parts of, of the show, folks, if you, if you didn't hear this, go back and listen to it, was the economics or the monetary side of removing vitamins from a health bar and investing the money saved into packaging. Now, we know that marketing companies and food companies invest a lot in packaging, but maybe a, a couple of insights, Dr. Glenn, about the brain's response to packaging. And again, maybe, because I know you've got these insights into what big food companies are doing and that's putting us in a trap. So let's use, I want to give you an analogy in nature, and then I want to go back to the packaging of those food bars again, awesome. which were, which were multicolored and vibrant. Yeah. And, and um, okay. In nature, there are things called parasitic relationships and symbiotic relationships. There's a fish, I forget the name of the fish. It's a big fish. And it tends to get things caught in its teeth. 
and there's a little fish, let's call that fish B. So fish A is the one that gets caught in its teeth. Fish yeah. B likes to eat the things that are caught in fish A's teeth. What it does when it wants to clean fish A's teeth is it does a little dance and puts the big fish, fish A, in a trance. So fish A has things in its teeth, little fish comes along, does a little dance, and the big fish goes into a trance because over millions of years of evolutions, they've evolved a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. The little fish gets a, a meal, the big fish gets its teeth cleaned, everybody's happy. Along comes fish C. Fish yeah. C has been watching fish B do this little dance and mesmerize fish A for the longest time um, in millions and millions of years of evolution. Let's learn to mimic that dance. So fish C, can put fish A into a trance also. However, right. when fish C puts fish A into a trance, its intentions are parasitic. It actually goes and eats the gums and the lips of the, of the big fish. Yeah. So you got to watch out for fish C. <laughs> but, but big food has become fish C in some ways, I believe. Right. Um, so back to the food bar. They, the, what they did with the money in the packaging is they made it multicolored and vibrant um, and a diversity of colors. Now, have you ever heard the expression, eat the rainbow? No. Okay, well, you're, suppo you're supposed to eat, um, when you're eating fruit and vegetables, you're supposed to have ah, a diversity. It, of got it, yeah, yeah, got it, yeah. Because that diversity of color signals in nature on an evolutionary basis, it signals a diversity of micronutrients that are available. Mm. So if you want to ensure that you're getting a full complement of nutrients, you should eat the rainbow. Well, what they were doing at this place was they were taking that same signal. Think of how Fish C did the little dance. Mm. However, they're just taking your money. They're not providing you with the nutrients that that signal is supposed to provide. So there's nothing illegal about that. Mm. Um, but that kind of thing goes on all across the industry. And um, you, you have to be aware that they don't have your, they don't have your health interests really at heart. They have their financial interests. At heart, it's not all of them are bad, but there's a lot of um, a lot of bad stuff going on. I think your your advice when I, when I sort of said you're driving to the supermarket, your advice of where to spend your time in the supermarket is, and and it, that's nothing new, folks. Stay away from from the packaged food. It's just when they invade like small gondolas within fresh food areas and fruits yeah. and vegetables with this vibrant color. Thing yeah. that you sort of you, you start to look when we we talk or we hear a lot about people binging when they're stressed out i want to hear a little bit on stress factor and the fact that actually hopefully you'll tell us this that they we're causing more stress on the body by the binge eating but how does it all come together to actually appease people in the short term okay so when you're stressed out we have two nervous systems we have the sympathetic nervous system and a parasympathetic nervous system the sympathetic nervous system gets us revved up for emergency action yeah when you're stressed out your brain starts thinking i need to do something for my survival something is urgent here and it makes it more difficult to rest and digest and think about your uh, longer term goals and the people that you love and what you're really trying to accomplish and the kind of person you're trying to be in the world. Yes. And so 
the um, the correlate of that in the food system is that when you are stressed out, it will feel. Do you need a second? Excuse me. It's okay. Yeah. You, want, you want to get some water? It's all good. Okay. I just had some. <laughs> Thank you. When you feel stressed out, you're going to um, be much more likely to want to binge because your your primitive brain is saying, "We need fuel. We have an emergency here. Uh, yeah. We got to get something very quickly." I once went out with this woman who told me that she binged and binged and binged until she found yoga. And that when she started doing yoga at night, she no longer wanted to binge at night. Right. And I said, that's because yoga activates your parasympathetic nervous system. Yep. It, it's a very controlled type of stress, which is then released so that you can live more in your parasympathetic nervous system yeah. and relax and rest. And, and she says she just didn't want to binge after that. Well, there are a couple of things that you can do if you find yourself stressed out that could activate your parasympathetic nervous system if you don't like yoga or you don't have time for it. I, I am a fan yeah. of yoga, so I, I would recommend it. Yeah. Um, uh, Lori Hammond has something she calls a, she's a hypnotist, some, something she calls a 7-11 breath, where you breathe in for a count of seven. I'm not going to do it now. But yeah. But you yeah. breathe in slowly for a count of seven, and you breathe out for a count of 11. Yeah. Now think about it. If there was a tiger chasing you or a building was falling down on you or there actually was a genuine emergency, yeah. would you have time to breathe out for longer? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> so when you, when you breathe in for shorter than you breathe out and you're taking the time to do that, you're signaling your brain that we are not in an emergency condition. Right. Other things you can do are to carry around a piece of paper with you or a smartphone, anything you can write with a pen and paper, a smartphone. Yep. And as long as you have a clear rule, you'll be more aware of when your inner pig is trying to get you to binge because it receives an emergency. And let's say my pig is suddenly saying, you know, it's Wednesday, but you worked out hard enough and, you know, chocolate grows on a plant and a cocoa bean. So it's really a vegetable. It, you might as well, you might as well go ahead and binge. It's just as easy to start again tomorrow. Yeah. It's really fine. Well, when I hear that, I know that because I have a rule that says I'll never eat chocolate during the week that that must be my inner pig or my reptilian brain. At that moment, if I take a breath, ideally a 7-Eleven breath, and I write down what the pig said, just the act of writing it down helps me to switch nervous systems because writing and cognitive processing is much more of an upper brain activity than a lower brain activity. So just the act of writing takes me out of that emergency mode. If you are being chased by a tiger or a building is falling on you, you don't have time to write and reason. You can go beyond that and you can say, I'm so sorry about that. You can go beyond that and you can say, um, that's unprofessional of me. I forgot to turn off the phone. Um, you, you can now say, well, how is my pig lying to me? What, what's the illusion in its logic? Because the pig usually wins with a half truth and a bigger lie. The truth is I did do a good workout that day and I probably wouldn't gain weight if I had you know, a half a bar of chocolate. However, what's the likelihood I'm actually gonna have a half a bar of chocolate <laughs> once, once I get started? And more importantly, I would be breaking my rule which would sap my spirit and you know, it's the camel's nose in the tent. You don't wanna, you don't wanna let that happen. Um, also, 
it's, it's not true that it would be just as easy to start tomorrow. The principles of neuroplasticity say yes. that if, if you have an urge and you reinforce that urge today with the chocolate, you're actually going to have a stronger urge tomorrow because what fires together wires together. So if you're in a hole, you got to stop digging. So <laughs> yes. the only time you got to use the present moment to be healthy. So once I've exited the you know stressful emergency sympathetic nervous system activation, mm. and I've written it down, I've taken my breaths and I've written it down and I've found the thing that's not logical in it, I should be feeling significantly calmer. The last thing you want to do is to ask yourself, is there an authentic need here? Right. So for example, I often found that I would get chocolate squeals. My pig would be squealing for chocolate. <laughs> um, when it, like at three, four in the afternoon when I was low on energy. Yeah. And I did some experimentation asking myself, well, what's, what's the authentic need? Um, sometimes it was just to step away from the whirlwind of things in my responsible adult life. Yeah. But more often than not, I actually had to feed myself. And I experimented with different types of smoothies. And I eventually came to this um, smoothie with either kale or celery juice and a bunch of bananas. And once I got that, I didn't enjoy it the same way that I enjoyed the chocolate. I didn't get yeah. high with it, yeah. but it scratched the itch and the urge wasn't there. And when you combine that with all of the stress reducing breathing and writing and deactivation of the false logic that the pig is telling you, it becomes almost impossible to binge after that. So that's, that's the real secret. Amazing, right? Some absolutely, honestly, great stories. It comes from a fantastic place of, of real experience and, and backed up with your knowledge. And you bring all of this together over on your website, neverbingeagain.com. Tell a little Tell us a little bit about that. And I know you have some different books that are simply just out there to help people with, I, I would say, a, a condition that you suffered with, Dr. Glenn. Suffered with for decades. <laughs> yeah. For, de for de decades and decades. Yeah. Um, okay. So if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button, you will get, and you can sign up for the reader bonus list, you can get three important things. One is we'll make sure you get a copy of the Kindle, Nook, or PDF version for free. There's no charge, no charge for the book in digital format in Kindle, Nook, or PDF. Uh, we do have Audible and paperback, but there are charges for that. The second thing you will get is a set of food plan starter templates because this is diet agnostic. So we spent a lot of time thinking through um, a set of rules that people might want to consider if they were doing keto versus macrobiotic versus point counting versus calorie counting, what, whatever you're doing, there's a plan that comes pretty close to what you are. But we, yeah. we call them starter templates because we want you to take responsibility for it. And I'm, like I'm not it. a medical doctor in nutrition. I, I have a PhD. Yeah. Um, the last thing is, I know that it must seem kind of weird that Marcus has this doctor on who says he's got a big inside of him. And it sounds really harsh, but it's not. It's actually a very life-giving um, hope-inspiring, uh, enthusiasm-generating process. And so I recorded a bunch of full-length coaching sessions that you can hear. Um, these are all, so all of this is free at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. If you, when you do that, you'll be led to everything else. Uh, we have coaching programs. We have, um, I, I've written seven books. There's a book specifically on nighttime eating. There's a book specifically on binge triggers. You know, what, 
what do you do when you have your period? What do you do when you're too tired? What about when family comes over? Yeah. There, there's called 45 binge triggers. Um, we, ha we have all sorts of books for all kinds of specific problems, but um, it all starts at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. And, yeah. Amazing. There is, folks, there is so much over there. Glenn, you shared a few of them, but I, I spent a little bit of time on the site. There's loads. And as you said, you've put so much of it into the world for free. There's also options, guys, don't get me wrong, to actually contribute to Glenn staying alive and being able to continue to, to do this stuff. So there's bought stuff as well. But mate, thank you so much for, for sharing the story. It's, it's super interesting. Thank you for taking the time to, to share both the practical of what you've experienced, the life experience and, 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 and all the different sort of intricacies of it. It's, it's very, very inspiring. And, and I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Amazing.